1: Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities, like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Demons.
1: In some religions, they're helpful spirits. In others, they're dire opponents. How can so many religions have such wildly different ideas about these mysterious entities? We'll find out more about this topic as a familiar voice joins us to share her research. Talks proud to welcome back Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and today I'm delighted to be welcoming back Monster Talk co-host, Dr. Karen Stallsnow, whose hard work has brought forth two books that will no doubt be of interest to our listeners. The one we're talking about today is all about unusual religious practices in America, and this includes a few items that dip right into Monster Talk territory. It's a well-researched, fun-to-read, and highly informative book, and I hope you'll pick up a copy. Now, let's get to the interview.
2: Monster Talk.
1: All right. So, Monster Talk welcomes back Karen Stolzno, who's recently published two great books. First, Haunting America, which is available on the Kindle from Amazon, and the brand new work, God Bless America Strange and Unusual Religious Beliefs and Practices in the United States, which is also available as an ebook, but it's also a very attractive, tangible edition. Uh, You can check the show notes for a link on that. Welcome back, Karen.
2: Thank you, Blake.
1: Typically on Monster Talk, we've tried to steer away from religion, but I think uh, Karen's new book does cover some topics that will be near and dear to monster lovers' hearts. It's got voodoo and exorcism and even a chapter on the Church of Satan and how it compares to the allegations of satanic cults in America. So this should be fun.
2: Yeah, Uh, and I think there's a a lot of overlapping with skepticism and humanism as well. Absolutely.
1: So first of all, how did a linguist like yourself come to write a book about unusual religions?
2: Well, I, I think as a, an outsider coming from another country – Uh, Something I've always been interested in is culture and uh, coming here and seeing groups like the fundamentalist Mormons and the Amish and Mennonites and certainly these beliefs and practices that we don't have in Australia. I was fascinated by them. And uh, I started writing a book years ago called Red, White and True Blue about my experiences as an Australian living in the States. And there are a lot of similarities. We have the same language, not the same dialect, but the same language because there are so many similarities, when there are cultural differences, they can really be quite a gulf. Uh, So, I, I wrote that book, and this is a kind of companion book to that, but about religious beliefs and practices. That's why I wrote this book.
1: The book is about unusual religious practices, and I don't disagree with your choices, but how did you decide which religions were unusual enough to be in the book?
2: Well, I'm not saying that there there won't be a sequel in future to cover some of the other religious beliefs and practices that aren't uh, covered in this one, but I wanted to go with ones that are very popular, uh, some that uh, Americans are very fond of, like the Amish and ones that we have a lot of stereotypes about as well, and we we don't really understand myths and misconceptions to clear a lot of those up. So I looked at uh, minority beliefs and practices, but also ones that uh, are very, very infamous or famous.
1: From a monster perspective, I think, um, let's start with voodoo because it ties into uh, zombies, Mm -hmm. Um, And I know most people know it from zombies and voodoo dolls, but there's a lot more to it as you cover in the book. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Absolutely. It is a religion. I think a lot of people just think of it in terms of those stereotypes of uh, zombies and and, uh, voodoo dolls, but there's there's certainly a lot more to it. Uh, Now, it's… As for the, the voodoo dolls alone, um, they're not the cute poppets that you think of um, that they had in England a couple of hundred years ago. Instead, the, the real voodoo dolls are made of things like wax and sticks and rope and wood. And uh, they're not usually something that you stab like a pin cushion so that you cause pain in a, a corresponding part of someone's body. They do function as an effigy. Uh, so there's a lot of sympathetic magic in voodoo. Uh, but they can also be used for good spells too. They can be used as a talisman or to attract good luck uh, amulets as well. So they're, they're used in lots of different ways.
1: Where did voodoo come from? We, uh, it's you, you describe it as kind of a hybrid religion of uh, Western Africa and Catholicism. So can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Well, it's got a very long history. It originally came from, uh, I think, the Fon and Yew people in West Africa. And it was transported to Haiti um, when the, the French colonies were set up there and they uh, transported slaves. Um, so it it started there. And there are different variants in other countries, too. There's Candomblé, which was brought over by slaves to Brazil, and Santeria, which was brought over to Cuba uh, with slaves. Voodoo was independently brought to the United States as well with slaves who were brought here. Um, so there are lots of different variants, different different spellings of it as well. Um, but by and large, the, the religion doesn't have any doctrine. So there's, there's no voodoo Bible or anything like that. There's no church. It's more of an oral tradition, and it's changed over time, as you were saying. Um, it's syncretized with Catholicism. So, when it was taken to countries like Haiti into the United States, uh, the slaves were subject to something called the Code Noir. Uh, So, that was the Slave Code, which was set up by the French colonizers. And this basically said that the slaves had to convert to Catholicism within about a week of their arrival. So, they weren't allowed to practice their religion anymore. So, (laughs) Working as slaves, this was something that was very important to these people. So they held on to their religion, but they had to protect it. They had to practice it in secrecy and to, to hide it as much as possible. So the way that they did that was to to blend Catholicism into their beliefs. And so uh, they started using Catholic saints to represent the uh, Voodoo spirits, and they started using Catholic prayers and novenas. Um, and so it really caused this. It's called syncretization, uh, a melding of the two religions.
1: Are they polytheistic?
2: Well, they're monotheistic. Uh, they just believe in a single God, but it's not quite the God of that Americans would be familiar with, a God that you can petition with prayer and one who is involved in our daily lives. Um Instead, these spirits act as an intermediary. So they're known by different names in different religions. For voodoo, they're known as Loa or Orisha for Santeria. And so they function as intermediary between us and between God. And they uh, apparently uh, participate in our daily lives. So when we have misfortune, they cause that and they they bring good luck if we treat them well. Uh, So the, the spirits are kind of like the Catholic saints, uh, they were believed to be once people uh, who lived and had exceptional lives. Sometimes they're relatives. Sometimes they're representations of uh, things in nature like the sun and water. So uh, there are some similarities to Catholicism, uh, but they're, they're certainly monotheistic, but have a plethora of spirits.
1: Right. And in addition to the saints that we may recognize, they have the West African gods are now treated in sort of the same way, they're also kind of a, like saint-like entities?
2: Yeah. For example, Papa Legba, he's a famous one. You might see in in some voodoo shops in New Orleans, images of him, uh, the statues and faces of him. Usually he's got cowrie shells for eyes. And so he is uh, melded usually with St. Peter. So he's recognized as St. Peter holding the key to heaven. Uh, so they're just, they're blended in with the Catholic saints.
1: Wow. So, uh, if you wanted to set up a, a voodoo practice or uh, a voodoo, there wouldn't be necessarily be a church, but there would be ceremonies. Are, are there leaders in, within the group? Or
2: Yeah, they, they don't have popes or bishops, but they do have priests and priestesses, so they're a bit more progressive than the Catholic Church. Uh, so they, in that regard, they're not like Catholicism, but they've got uh, priests who are known as Hugans and priestesses who are the Mambos.
1: Yeah, so what's a, a Hodon or Hodown? Hudon. Hud, hudon. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how <laughs> <I> to... <think, laughs> I, think, I think it's French, hudon, right? Hudon it's probably hudon, because, yeah, you right. drop the H.
2: Houdon. <laughs> right. Which hudon. Americans often do, too, with words like herbs.
1: <laughs> they do. They do. Right. I, I, it's a long way to go, but I was just trying... I couldn't remember what they were, but I thought it would be a, a voodoo mystery would be a but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: one thing I wanted to say as well, I hope that you enjoyed all of the puns in the book.
1: Oh, they're great, and it's yeah. A, a, you mine? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you're you're not as uh, overt as I am.
2: <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I did my best. Don't be,
1: don't be. I think they're funnier when you, they slip up on you. So, wait a minute. We talked about there's leadership, but how how do the rituals? I mean, how does one get qualified or uh, become uh, a part of a voodoo? Uh, do you just read a book, or do you do you oh. need to be trained or?
2: There, there's certainly the opinion that there are different kinds of voodoo that there's a real or authentic voodoo and that's practiced by the priests and priestesses and uh, that there are more amateur types. but I think there are all different types of voodoo. It's not necessarily that one is is more pure and others are more corrupt. So I think they're, they're just different. Uh, so if you want to get involved, I mean usually a, a priest or a priestess they believe that they're somehow you know touched, by, by God, or uh, contacted by the spirits, and uh, that they're chosen in some way to be involved in voodoo. But again, there's lots of different types in this country. Um, lots of different rituals that are practiced too, because there's no doctrine. The main way that people practice Voodoo is through ceremonies and through rituals. So that could be through spells, which are kind of like recipes. Uh, maybe there's a, there's a famous honey jar recipe where someone takes a jar with a, a candle in it, and uh, they add some kind of honey or molasses, something to to sweeten that and to thereby, metaphorically, to sweeten the spirits. Uh, and, of course, if you go to New Orleans and some of the tourist shops there, you'll find things like amulets and talisman and gris uh, gris and mojo. And so people who practice voodoo as well, uh, from priests and priestesses through to just followers, they might have an altar as well. So you, you might see those if you go to, to New Orleans. You go to one of the museums there.
1: Yeah, you just reminded me the, the last time we went to New Orleans. Uh, I went to a voodoo shop and bought uh, a, a little a good luck voodoo doll, and then on the bottom of it, it said it was made in China. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, some of those are just really cheap trinkets and, and very tacky, and uh, I mean, they sell them right beside jambalaya and coffee with chicory, so I don't think it's meant to be the real thing, even though you'll hear in hushed tones there that uh, maybe someone who works in a store can direct you to the real authentic stuff if you've yeah. got the money for it, so it's all a bit of a ripoff. off uh, but... Yeah, you, with the altars that you'll see there, and and people have altars at home as well, uh, and so they might... Um, uh, I'm just trying to think of a, an example there. They're usually used for things like spells, or they might be used for, for devotion as well, for worship to a particular spirit. And so they might have, uh, it's a a table or some kind of surface that's covered maybe with velvet and might have sequins and and ribbons and various things. And, uh, they'll include candles and statues of saints, Catholic saints, and maybe incense and voodoo dolls. And they'll have offerings, maybe things like food. And uh, I'm sure you saw in New Orleans too, lots of cigarettes, lots of, lots of money and sometimes marijuana and and other things too. Tobacco, so these, yeah. Yeah, these are all things to appeal to the spirits and to yeah. petition. Them At as least well. in
1: the New Orleans style, it, it seemed mostly about uh, trying to uh, get reality to go the way you want it to, the, like to uh, intent, like to, to get oh
2: yeah, there, luck or,
1: or romance.
2: The, oh yeah, there's crossover with uh, New Age spirituality as well. A lot of it's about uh, affirmations and intent, and uh, there's certainly a lot of Spells which are intended for good and folk medicine and blessings and stuff like that. There's certainly a lot of bad as well. But getting back to the uh, the rituals are also group ceremonies. They do the standard stuff that other religions do, like weddings and funerals and and baptisms and, and healings. And um, you can also get married to spirits as well. Sometimes if you petition them for something, they might ask as a favor that you marry them. And so it's kind of like a, a polygamy where you can marry as many spirits as you like and still have earthly partner as well
1: it must be really disappointing when you find that neither your wife nor your voodoo god will have sex with you
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, i'm sure it happens
1: <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, you know, Papa Legba, he's not that into me anymore.
2: (laughs) Uh, I think he likes a bottle of rum and a good cigar instead. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) He's old. He needs Papa Legba Viagra. (laughs) Yeah. Oh,
2: gosh. That's a good one. (laughs) But they've all got their favorite things. And so if you want something from them, uh, you have to to give them that, whether it's French pastries or uh, whether it's jewelry. And if you don't give them what they want, then they can cause all kinds of harm and misfortune in your life.
1: I want to talk about zombies. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, obviously, there's a sort of pop culture shift that's happened in zombies since uh, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead film happened. Mm -hmm. But before that film, zombies almost always meant a voodoo-type zombie. Uh, something raised by ritual or, and it, it's really unclear whether they meant something, at least in pop culture whether they meant something that was dead and brought back to life or something that was living in kind of a half-life. But can, can we talk about that a little bit?
2: Well, yeah, I think one of the definitions of a zombie, I mean, zombie is also a uh, a snake spirit in voodoo, spelt z z o m b i. but zombie there are different ideas of what a zombie is usually it's a reanimated corpse uh, I think The kind of uh, stereotypical or prototypical zombie is a person who is taken to the brink of death and then they're reanimated somehow. Uh, So uh, it can be a a thing of revenge. There's a great fear in Haiti of uh, zombification, so much so that uh, it's actually illegal under the Haitian penal code. That's how much people believe in it to this day. And so if someone dies in the family, they might have someone who keeps guard over that body for days to even weeks to make sure that a uh, and one of these evil sorcerers known as a Bacor doesn't come by and steal the body and use that body for uh, either to bring that person back as a, a zombie or to use that person's body parts in spells. Usually there's some kind of uh, poison that is used for these real zombies. Uh, And, again, they'll be taken to this point of of near death uh, and so much so that the the family will bury that person. And they're they're in this kind of state uh, where they're not quite dead and then they're revived by the, the sorcerer and then turned into a slave maybe to work on a plantation
1: yeah that's a terrible thing to happen Uh, although uh, (laughs) in some ways though I mean um, being a slave uh, having your entire life controlled by some slave master is not radically different from being a zombie I mean, except that maybe as a zombie you don't um, you don't lament your situation as much
2: yeah I think you don't quite have your personality is gone so you're in this kind of half dead state
1: yeah there's a lot of uh, in in fact in real life um, there's a lot of sort of Drug-related ways when where a person can pretty much end up being in a slave-like situation uh, with addictions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And these because these sorcerers don't use anything like that. It's always about um, various potions and poisons.
1: So, were there any real examples of zombies that came up in your research?
2: Uh, there are a number of examples of real. i say seen quotey fingers uh, of zombification and. Usually they've, they've been verified by family members, so uh, there's just a strong belief of this in the country still to this day. And uh, there's a famous story, that of Clavius Narcisse. I'm not sure if you've heard of him
1: before. I have, I have, but maybe yeah. people in the uh, listening audience have not.
2: It's probably the most famous case uh, treated in uh, The Serpent and the Rainbow of a fellow who turned up on his sister's doorstep in about 1983, but he'd been dead 20 years already. And so his story is that he fell ill one day and went to hospital and uh, after a couple of days of spitting up blood and vomiting, he was in a bad way, he died. And so his family buried him and uh, then over time, you mourned him and forgot about him and and then he allegedly came back. And his story was that he hadn't actually died. He'd gone into this state uh, where he who was neither alive nor dead. And then he was revived after he'd been buried. He was revived by one of these because these sorcerers who then set him to work in a sugar plantation for a couple of years. Uh, And so this was some kind of revenge act that had been uh, brought about by his brother, some kind of family grievance. And so he, he did this to him and so eventually this master on the sugar plantation died and he wandered the country for about 16 years, just waiting for his brother to to die. And when he did, he came back and was reunited with his family. And they were convinced that that this was him because he just knew so much about the family history. And uh, so there, there are actually other cases. There's a movie, I think it's called Imposter. Uh, and it's a story of, a I think, uh, maybe an orphan or a criminal in another country who wants to come to the United States, did some research and found the story of a boy who'd been murdered and basically assumed his personality and uh, came to this country and was just welcomed with open arms by the family because they really wanted to believe that their their son had come back to them. So there are a number of cases of, of zombification in Haiti and usually they turn out to be uh, cases of mental illness or, and mistaken identity. And there was one study which was done and there were about three people who were uh, tested and it was found that their DNA disproved that they were actually family members, but they had been welcomed into the family. Um, they didn't look as old as the people who died. They were clearly different people, but with just such a strong belief in voodoo in the country, uh, they were just very willing to believe that these people had come back very strange situation
1: yeah uh, even now Haiti has a, a really uh, bad situation uh, economically technologically um, oh, medically yeah,
2: the, the healthcare uh, situation is really bad there and that's why uh, voodoo and hoodoo medicine is just so popular in this country too a lot of people who practice voodoo here and there are maybe about a million practitioners uh, they will use orthodox medicine in conjunction with folk medicine
1: Right. I guess what I was getting at is it's not, I mean, it's easier to fake or uh, get away with a a sort of a voodoo impersonation of a zombie there, because here you could relatively easily get a DNA test and find out whether this person was really your returned relative.
2: Oh, yeah, and I think, as you were discussing popular culture earlier, zombies in this country are a different thing since the Night of the Living Dead there, something that's caused by a a virus or a plague, and it's a a contagious condition rather than than being a state of animation, of of being uh, a a zombie.
1: You may recall a long time ago we did an interview uh, with the author of a book called The Zombie Autopsies, Mm -hmm. and he talked about how that if if a zombie case came into the hospital – People wouldn't assume it was a zombie. They would assume this person had a medical problem. They would be trying yes. to treat them. And it's like you know, of course, which is the worst that you could do with zombies. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're awfully bitey, uh, You know,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there was the uh, the CDC who used the the whole idea of the zombie a- apocalypse to try and explain to people what they'd do in uh, the situation of a crisis. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, have you seen the Serpent and the Rainbow, or maybe read the book?
1: I, I read some of the book. I have seen the film. I, I realize that the book's a lot more serious. Uh,
2: yeah, that's you know. <laughs> written by a, an ethnobiologist by the name of Wade Davis. And so he went in search of the poison that's used by these evil sorcerers. And so he, I think, was led down a lot of uh, paths where people claimed to to give him the real thing. And uh, so he was misled by, by some of these sorcerers. And then eventually he came across the real thing. And so that was taken for uh, to a, a laboratory for examination and found to contain all kinds of interesting things. There was um, a neurotoxin called uh, puffer fish. There were remnants of that. And something called jimson weed, which is a, a hallucinogenic. And also lots of yucky stuff like um, just dried up bits of toads and lizards and spiders and um, babies' bones. Yeah. And so uh, these were tested by scientists and shown that they, the doses of the actual ingredients that might do something like the puffer fish, they the doses were just too small to have any kind of real effect.
1: Yeah, that's um, it, it's interesting because I, I wanted to get him on to discuss this, um, and I mm, that'd I, be great. <laughs> I've been working on tracking him down, but. Uh, I, don't want it to, like, I don't want it to be like an attack episode at all. I just was like to learn no. more about the cultural impact. Because I think, I think the idea that it was purely a chemical uh, process has been pretty much debunked. Mm-hmm. But um, he also made a lot of interesting points about the, the social role of uh, the controlling power of uh, voodoo and the threat of being made into a zombie uh, to wield uh, power.
2: Yes, yeah. Uh, And there's a a similar thing in Australia, they call it, uh, it's an Aboriginal, Australian Aboriginal uh, belief uh, in something called pointing the bone. So if you do this to someone, it's a a kind of revenge spell or um, a way to to maybe kill a person, you have bad intentions whenever you perform this. So when you point the bone, um, that's supposed to cause a person person to wither away and die. And there was an incident uh, many years ago with one of the Australian prime ministers, I think it was John Howard. And uh, a, an Aboriginal leader was very angry with him for something that he did. And so he pointed the bone at, at John Howard. And of course, he didn't believe in it. So nothing happened. But for people who do believe in it, they really do lose that, um, they, they have that failure to thrive.
1: You know, even here in America, some politicians have gotten in trouble for pointing their bone.
2: <laughs> in, a, in a very different way. <laughs>
1: but, but in all seriousness, uh, the power of Voodoo to uh, wield uh, um, uh, psychological control uh, mm-hmm. was probably worst exemplified with what Papa Doc Duvalier and his son Baby Doc, right?
2: Yes, he was the the president uh, of Haiti, and uh, he, there was a real personality cult that was around him. And uh, I think in many ways he kind of revived a lot of interest in voodoo uh, during his tenure. And so he often claimed to be a, a voodoo priest and I think even said that he was Jesus Christ and and God. Uh, and so he, speaking about spirits, he would model his image on uh, one of the spirits known as Baron Samadhi who's one of these evil spirits. You've got good spirits and bad spirits. And he's the spirit or the lower of death. And uh, Papa Doc would wear sunglasses and a black suit and would even change his accent so he sounded like this spirit, the way that people perceive this spirit. And he would uh, really oppress his people with that. And uh, it was a very evil, tyrannical regime that he was running there. I, I think there were about... Some maybe 30,000 people that he killed off.
1: <laughs> wow! Yeah, he disappeared a lot of people and they've never been found. Mm. Um, so that's that's probably the darkest uh, way that it legitimately gets wielded. But it's—I yeah. mean—it sounds like from what your book describes, it's not—you know—it's mostly I don't want to say oh, completely harmless, but uh, it doesn't seem particularly grim as or disturbing the way it, like it's always portrayed in uh, movies. Let's see, in 1997, I took a uh, paranormal-themed road trip across the United States. Uh, I went to a lot of UFO sites, and um, the only I voodoo place I went was, uh, I went to New Orleans to see the grave of Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, you know, is she still a popular figure in voodoo?
2: Oh, I mean, she died, uh, I can't think of the year, maybe 1881, even though there are claims that she's still alive. Um, and that (laughs) it seems like she had a daughter who looked just like her and a granddaughter who looked like her. So uh, there was this perpetuation of the myth that she was living to some biblical age. So she's still a big presence in New Orleans after all of these centuries. Um, So she's very interesting, was a very interesting woman. Um, She was a free woman who was of a mixed background and she's still known as the voodoo queen of New Orleans today. But she started out as a hairdresser, and then she decided to – it wasn't very lucrative, so she decided to learn um, her new craft from a Dr. John, a mysterious Dr. John. And so there's a lot of controversy about her in the way that she's perceived today, a lot of contradiction. I think people see her as uh, you know, the voodoo queen of New Orleans, but at the same time she died a devout Catholic um people see her as being very good and kind. She used to uh assist slaves in being freed and she'd do all kinds of kind things for the poor and yet at the same time, here she was selling curses and cures and charms and blackmailing people uh running brothels um so she's really this
1: she's an entrepreneur
2: dichotomy <laughs> yes yeah yeah um. So, yeah, there's, there's also just the claim that, uh, as I said, that she had, uh, had just lived for a very long time and people were very scared of her. And so to this day, people go and visit her tomb, which I think is in the St. Louis Cemetery, number one. I think so. And um, there, it's the, the big tomb with all of the crosses on it. People tend to draw three crosses. And uh, I think with a lot of catholic prayers too they usually involve the number three or the number nine somehow this repetition of a prayer or or something like that and so people might walk around the tomb three times and then knock three times and make some kind of request and then leave her a gift as well because food is very polite
1: yeah (laughs) well when i went in 97 i mean her her tomb was just covered with um all kinds of marks and there were coins mm-hmm. and candles out front and, uh, all kinds oh, of little offerings.
2: Flowers. Yeah. And, oh yeah. Um, it's, they, they closed the, the, uh, cemetery early nowadays, but, um, people used to, I think people still try to, to break in very high walls around the cemetery, but yeah, people break in and do all kinds of crazy things.
1: You know, since i since we're talking about the cemeteries in New Orleans, I'm going to throw something out here that I find very interesting. Mm-hmm. The, um, um, and I haven't seen much published on this, but I did do a lot of research on it. The, there's a, this story going around about the cemeteries in New Orleans that the reason they use above-ground burials is because the water table is so high in New Orleans. That if they dug to bury somebody, that uh, that the, uh, the, the coffins would just bounce up out of the ground if there was a flood. Mm. Uh, and floods are fairly common, as we saw.
2: Ah, uh, Yes. <laughs>
1: But but my research indicates uh, that that's not the reason they're using above-ground burials. It's actually because mm. of uh, during the history of New Orleans, they had a, a period where they were controlled by the Spanish, and the Spanish style of burials right. became very popular. And if you ever go right. to Spain and look at uh, graveyards, they look very, very similar. And well,
2: yeah. yeah. I was going to say I thought that that would be some kind of tradition, yeah. um, instead a European tradition. And I think that they... W- They also took advantage of the heat in New Orleans, and so they would uh, bury a body, and then maybe a couple of years later, another family member would die and be uh, interred into the same tomb, and because of the heat, they would turn into a kind of human jerky, I guess, and and so it was a way of being able to reuse these tombs, but it, it was more a style, I think. That sounds like a good urban legend, though.
1: Well, yeah, it's extremely widespread. I, I only found a very tiny amount of uh, literature that referenced the Spanish influence. and Most everybody else just repeated the story that it was to stop the, you know, the coffins from popping out. But even, oh, yeah. Lots uh, even of if, different... in floods, Well, I was going to say, in my, I did some uh, scale model experiments, and uh, my findings were that if you bury deeper than, say, three feet – uh, you wouldn't even in a good flood you wouldn't get the coffin popping out. It just didn't happen. It doesn't mm-hmm. take very much dirt to keep something down. Um, but yeah, there is the washout. Washout's different. Like if the if the if a big you know flood came through and pushed the dirt away, that's an entirely different story. Clearly, that really does happen after hurricanes. Sometimes you do see coffins that are floating down the road, but that's because mm-hmm. they've been dug out by the motion of the water, not because they just literally popped up when the ground got wet.
2: Yeah, and then you've got uh, the Cheeseman Park here in Denver and the occasional happening of uh, some bones which pop out of the ground um, because they were just buried quite shallow.
1: Oh, I, I love Cheeseman Park. Uh, <laughs> the story about what happened there is fantastic.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. It was only a couple of years ago that we uh, had um, had found – well, not us personally, but um, some some bones had been found in the park. I think it was a bicyclist who was going through and found a skull or something, and instead of calling the police or, uh, or some kind of government authority, authority, he just called the local radio station and told them about it.
0: Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about, the stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or, say, Bigfoot... So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost. and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and
1: Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast.
2: Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents
1: climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming.
2: Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution.
1: Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur (laughs) injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases.
2: A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts
1: this is um, just this is really not really related to this topic but I, I'm going to just see if I get the story right you can correct me if I'm wrong But oh, maybe park, I don't know it well Cheeseman Park was originally a very large uh, cemetery outside of Denver um, and what happened was there was sort of a civic minded move to turn it into a park instead mm-hmm. of a cemetery but they needed to move the bodies Mm-hmm. In order to do that, and so they put a wall up or a fence up around the cemetery and began the process of moving all these bones. Mm-hmm. but they subbed it out to the you know the cheapest uh, contractor and discovered uh, after the fact that the contractor had just been throwing, you know, different body parts into different coffins, uh, you know, using the smallest, cheapest coffins to transport things out. And it's just, in general, we're, we're desecrating uh, what most people consider to be a, a, a you know, a sacred burial. Oh, um, yeah,
2: and splitting up bodies, too, so that he could, he was, I think, paid per body. Yeah. So, he was splitting bodies up into multiple, just truncating them, um, yeah, putting them into to multiple uh, graves.
1: And of course, now, uh, you know, that sort of uh, creepy story has led to people suspecting that there are restless spirits, and there's lots and lots of ghost stories about people seeing, uh, you know, sad, lonely, uh, uh, a- a- anachronistically clothed ghosts <laughs> in the region. So. It's
2: also a popular cruising spot.
1: <laughs> well, well, well. <laughs>
2: But, Going back to pointing the bone,
1: but... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, let's move on to um, um, a, a, a topic that I find uh, very interesting, I think the listeners will too, which mm-hmm. is uh, we just, just talked about uh, how in voodoo, uh, possession is considered to be a good thing, but in most of Western culture, when you talk about possession, you're talking about demons, and you're talking about dark forces taking over our bodies and causing us to do terrible things. So... Let's mm-hmm. talk about exorcism and demonic possession.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, as you said in voodoo, uh, possession is a positive thing. It means that you're more holy, not less. And so if you go to some kind of ceremony, maybe a healing or uh, a wedding of a human to a, a spirit, uh, then it's kind of like a Pentecostal or charismatic um, events where people uh, will just get into this kind of frenzied state after dancing and drumming for hours uh, and so kind of like handling snakes or drinking strychnine um, they'll get to a point where they become possessed by a spirit and uh, often afterwards that they'll do all kinds of crazy things they might uh dip their hands into boiling oil, or they might cut themselves with razors or eat broken glass. Usually, as it's practiced in the United States, they're going to be eating hot chilies or drinking alcohol instead. And often they will claim afterwards that they have no memory of this, They're kind of spiritual amnesia. They can't remember all of the crazy things that they do.
1: <laughs> eating hot chilies and drinking alcohol, that's like every night in Texas. That's like- <laughs> right,
2: yeah. And my household, not for me, but yeah. for others. <laughs>
1: Demonic possession has become a a big cultural thing in in America, at least, Mm -hmm. but this seems to have arisen during the 70s. Is that that right? I mean, it didn't seem like it was very popular before that, but then after William Peter Blatty's book, The Exorcist, it suddenly exploded.
2: Yeah, I think there have been periods of its popularity uh, throughout time. Often people will think that Jesus Christ was their first exorcist, but exorcism and demonic possession really goes back thousands of years to ancient societies like the Babylonians and the Egyptians and Greeks and Romans, and they might take a, a clay pot which could represent someone's demons and then smash that to, to somehow get rid of their demons. So, yeah, this has gone up and down in popularity. Um, during the medieval era as well, it was very popular and, of course, through biblical times. But uh, I think what brought it to the fore in modern times is The Exorcist and, um, gosh, it was the Roman Polanski
1: movie. Uh, uh, Rosemary's Baby.
2: Yes, with the uh, spawn of Satan.
1: And there was The, the Omen as well, which is… A little different, but um.
2: yeah. And then in recent years too, you've had a a number of other movies that have come out, like *The Last Exorcism* and *The Right*, which have just maintained that popularity of demonic possession and exorcism.
1: It does give you this sort of overt, right? As a person who's very skeptical, right? It would be fantastic if half, the, well, if a third, a tenth of the stuff that seems to happen on movie screens happened in real life. I mean, I don't, I don't want anybody to suffer, but, you know, if, if someone's head spins around and they can fly, that's pretty spectacular proof of something paranormal.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's a, a book by Michael Cuneo, I think it's called American Exorcism, and he talks about those kinds of things, the things that you might find in Malachi Martin's book – he calls those fireworks. And those are the things that, that just don't happen. The xenoglossia speaking some kind of unknown foreign language, uh, supernatural strength, these things don't seem to happen. Instead, it's just very mundane things like lust and uh, maybe alcoholism, uh, addictions to pornography. Basically, everyone is possessed all of the time if we just look at the the current beliefs in New Age exorcisms and deliverance ministries and Catholicism uh, it really it may be with the Catholics they might view some of these lesser symptoms as being demonic affliction or oppression instead of demonic possession mm, that's right that, right it's more serious uh, and that would require a major exorcism instead of just a, a minor one where they might just say a couple of prayers to to get those uh demons out of you
1: maybe that's a um, a meaningful metaphor for Uh, People, So like if you have an uncontrollable urge to drink or an uncontrollable Mm -hmm. urge to watch, I don't know, internet porn, then you might think to yourself, oh, I'm oppressed by a demon that's making me do that.
2: Yeah, Satan's a scapegoat and the devil made me do it and all of that. It's a a good excuse.
1: Yeah. I wonder if there's any studies on the efficacy of uh, demonic uh, exorcism uh, in uh, alleviating these symptoms.
2: Usually, I don't think there's too much success. They, by and large, will need to, uh, as you see in a movie like The Right, they'll need to do these exorcisms over days and weeks and months, and they still might not be successful.
1: Wow. Yeah, and And you mentioned Malachi Martin's Hostage to the Devil. Now, Mm -hmm. I've actually had multiple listeners email me asking if uh, I was going to cover that book on the show. Can you talk a little bit about that book and its sexual <laughs> oh, You could status? bring
2: him on the show through a Frank's
1: box or well, something. That, <laughs> yeah, he's a little bit dead uh, right yeah. now. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah, his uh, Hostage to the Devil is a very interesting read, and it's the kind of stuff that you'll see in The Exorcist, books flying off shelves and a woman being raped by a giant spider. Um, so all of these fireworks that I was talking about earlier. And he left the church he was a jesuit priest and uh he renounced all of his vows except for that of celibacy even though he was quite well known amongst the ladies and was known to have affairs and he started writing a lot of salacious stuff about the catholic church and i really tend to think that hostage to the devil is just another one of these works of fiction they're just too over the top
1: yeah, it d- it does have. Um, wh- what do they call it? The just vulgar displays of uh, <laughs> power, right? <laughs> Very vulgar. <laughs> so, exorcism itself, though, it, we have this sort of. Uh, I guess you could say I would call it benign exorcism, where you might just be trying to help somebody with an an issue, uh, like they're you know, like we talked about with uh, drinking or some other thing that's plaguing them about their personality. Yeah. But there, there's darker sides to it as well. I, I've seen a lot of cases where um people have been the victim of exorcism uh and died
2: mhm yes uh they're usually with the the home jobs You'll hear about cases where um, someone is on methamphetamine and they decide that uh, their little daughter is possessed and that they need to beat the crap out of her and uh, to, to get the demons out and then she dies. Lots of very unfortunate stories like that uh, and small religious groups too that try to pray away the gay in homosexual yeah. people and um, those who manipulate people with disabilities and mental illness uh, so there's very, very much a dark side. I mean, it's all pretty dark, to be honest. There are a lot of people out there manipulating people who have, who have a belief in this.
1: Yeah. So we, uh, in particular, the, there's a case that happened in Europe uh, in the 70s uh, about a girl named Annalise Michelle. And her exorcism took place over 10 months. And then during the exorcism, I guess she had a reduced uh, intake of food and liquid. Um mm-hmm. uh, I was gonna say that there's audio tapes of her exorcism. I, I think I'd like to stick a a little bit of that in here. It's quite disturbing.
2: It is, yeah. It's not something you want to listen to before going to bed. Uh, pretty, pretty upsetting. And
1: I want to interrupt here for a moment and share a little bit of the audio from one of Annalise's exorcism sessions. Keep in mind that her case took place in the mid 1970s, after the film The Exorcist had already come out. Based on the evidence from the trial surrounding her death, it seems much more plausible that she was mentally ill than that she was simply faking it or that she had actually had a true demonic possession. Here's the audio clip. Now, to compare, here's some audio from the film, The Exorcist.
0: Keep away! The
1: mine. And finally, here's a clip from a young woman being subjected to an exorcism by the, quote, real exorcist Bob Larson. We'll get to him in just a few moments.
0: At the cross of Christ, name. Name. Uh... Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Say it clearly. Huh? Who are you? Rage Rage, rage. I think that's rage? Mm-hmm. Are you rage?
1: As you can hear from these clips, there's a pattern, a similarity that to skeptical listeners might sound like they're acting out, that they're mimicking the prototype uh, that was given to them in the film The Exorcist. Was Annalise really possessed? Or was she mentally ill? Or could medical and psychiatric care have cured her? All we can say for sure is that had she been given medical treatment, at least she wouldn't have died in the horrible way that she did.
2: She, I think, had starved herself thinking that she was going to die and atone for the sins of uh, youth.
1: Yeah, And and, and ultimately the priests and her parents were charged with negligent homicide.
2: Yeah, she suffered from, I think, schizophrenia and epilepsy, and she was untreated, unmedicated, and decided to try exorcisms instead and underwent a... Huge amount of them, maybe 60 odd exorcisms that, of course, did nothing for her. And uh, she just withered away and died. And it was a very sad story.
1: Yeah, re- really, quite recently, I, I heard some people on a, a radio show uh, who were supporting, they were proponents of the idea that she literally still, even now, after all the court uh, seemed to clearly indicate that she was uh, sick, physically sick, mentally ill, t- and what she really needed was medical treatment. But they still believe mm-hmm. she actually was. Um, uh, possessed by uh, uh, demons. But the demons mm. they say she was possessed by were like uh, the demon Adolf Hitler. Uh, really? I mean.
2: Oh, she actually thought that she uh, was possessed by Nero and Judas Iscariot and Hitler at various times. Yeah. But so I'm astounded tragic. at how prevalent the belief in demons and evil spirits is to this day. And I gave a talk at the amazing meeting this year back in July about exorcisms, and uh, that particular uh, lecture went online, just on YouTube, and I'm shocked at the backlash that I've received from believers about how ignorant I am and how demons do exist, and you know we've made them in our own image.
1: Well, I, even if demons do exist, I, I don't think that gives anyone the right to uh, take someone else hostage. Uh, you know capture them and force mm-hmm. them to be subjected to these uh very uh, dangerous rituals there's a big difference between praying for someone or uh, you know as in the bible where jesus just cast out the demon in his name uh with these uh um I don't know how to, violent acts that people are doing in these, like, as you call them, home jobs where they're mm-hmm. they're suffocating people, they are starving yeah. them and, and hitting them. There are so them. many
2: stories. Uh, there's yeah. one of a little boy called Terence Cottrell who was about eight years old and autistic, and his mother took him to their local church. I'm not sure what uh, denomination it was. And they basically held him down and he was kicking and screaming, which was further evidence that he was possessed to them. Oh, my. And they suffocated him, basically sat on him until he to stop moving. Just very tragic reading these stories. And I uh, do treat a number of them in God Bless America, and it's very upsetting.
1: So, in the less hazardous but maybe still harmful side of things, we have the real exorcist Bob Larson. <laughs>
2: the real exorcist. The yeah.
1: real exorcist. That's his tagline.
2: <laughs> in his failed television series for sci-fi. <laughs> That's right.
1: But I I have to say that while he has amused me and until mm-hmm. I read this chapter in your book, uh, and I don't want to spoil the ending, but... Um, wow, you gave it uh, a lot more gravity than I would have thought could be uh, uh, squeezed out of him, but there it is. Yeah, well,
2: he's an interesting character and I've been tracking him for years and when I lived in the Bay Area, he just didn't go anywhere near San Francisco. I think you've just got a different kind of person there. Um, Certainly in other parts of the country, there are a lot of, he has a lot of followers and he's often traveling to other countries and always begging for money. Uh, And if you don't support him, he's going to have to, close his pearly gates uh so he it's very interesting and i would recommend to all skeptics that they try to attend one of his events if he comes through town that's an interesting experience and you know, it's kind of a, a brainwashing session when you turn up These go for hours and hours and he tries to wear you down and keeps begging for donations. But he'll usually start with some videos of people being exercised and what he's really doing. It's a kind of hypnosis and he's building these people up for their role playing. And so he's showing these images and people are learning through that uh, how they should behave when he starts to exercise the room. So, yeah, it's just he has these intermittent bouts where he he tries to sell his books and DVDs and and keeps begging for money and then he'll perform these exorcisms on people around the room and usually at some point he'll pick a victim out of the audience and parade them before everyone else. And usually it's a person who has some very salacious kind of problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe they sleep around or they're addicted to drugs and they'll do a – performance basically in front of the room and
1: yeah. joe nickel described it as being very much like stage hypnosis not that they're hypnotized but that they are complicit in the uh performance right they, they, they have well, a role they're playing
2: it's a kind of shock induction really the way that he drags someone up on stage and how violent he is and barking orders at them and he's all the time giving them cues and telling them what they need to do And they're following the instructions and he asks them, what demon are you possessed by? And because they've seen the videos, they're going to say Legion or Belial or Jezebel, one of these famous TV uh, demons. And so then he'll ask them what kind of, they're possessed by whether it's alcoholism or drugs so he's really feeding them the answers and they just have to choose one of those answers and usually that person's very distraught Mm -hmm. uh and it's a a scary kind of circus to be there everyone is in the audience is playing along too and the last event that i went to there's a woman in front of me who was growling and they, they just know the drill. They know how to behave. And when you're caught up in that mass hysteria, everyone's participating. It was just so surreal.
1: If he came here, I would go see him for sure. I, I would like to see it firsthand. But well,
2: I think yeah. there's a lot to be said for armchair skepticism. But to go out there and learn how these things work, to see it firsthand is very, very different. And, you know, every skeptic is skeptical of exorcism. But to go and experience it and to see it uh, is a, a, just an important thing to learn. We tried to be exercised, but no, he wouldn't go for us. I think he could tell <laughs> that we were skeptics.
1: Oh, th- yeah. You have a, a, a dark aura about you. and uh. Exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's all it that was.
1: <laughs> so, from Demons, let us now turn to satanic cults. You covered this pretty well. There's a big disparity between the sort of self-professed members of the Church of Satan and the kind of satanic cults that are described in uh, the famous ritual abuse cases uh, which, by mm-hmm. the way, it's interesting. One of those was just in the news again. There was one that's uh, just now been settled out of court just a couple of days ago. They're still going on. But can you talk about what the difference is between the the boogeyman version of Satanic cults and then the uh, the real Church of Satan?
2: Oh yeah, and we were talking about cemeteries earlier and people breaking into them and you might uh, hear of cases in the news of vandalism of cemeteries and uh, animal sacrifice taking place in cemeteries and that's more likely to be someone who practices Candomblé or Santeria than to be a a Satanist. Um, I focus on Levain. Satanism, the Satanism, the Church of Satan through Anton LaVey, uh, in the book, and I look at the various different kinds of Satanism, and there there might be a small band of real devil worshippers, people who do believe in Satan as a a real adversary to God, and who worship him through uh, through burning candles and stuff like that. Profane rituals, right,
1: right.
2: Yes. Uh, But you'll find that most Satanists are atheists or non-theists or or skeptics or humanists. Uh, So the the theistic Satanists are a very rare breed.
1: Yeah, it seemed like um, uh, theatrical atheism, if if that could be.
2: It really is. Uh, And these are, are people who just... They they do practice magical rituals, but it's usually within the context of they call it psychodrama. So it might be purging yourself of inhibitions and fears, but it's not necessarily that they believe that they can uh, affect have affect the the external world through some kind of ritual. Uh, even though Anton Lavey did say at some stage in one of his books that if uh, you're successful with magic, that you do need to. Acknowledge the power of magic. So who knows? He was full of ish. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, well, to be blunt, yeah, absolutely. He was, um, uh, I've heard so many interesting uh, firsthand anecdotes of, about uh, the kind well, of I'll, things he would say. You know. I'll tell
2: you a short secondhand one, and yeah. that is that Matthew's mother used to run this little uh, store just selling odds and ends, like a, an early 7 um, Eleven uh, in a place called Walden in sort of northern colorado and he came in one day and he was a right asshole to her really really rude really mean picking a fight with her and this is this lovely little lady and uh he bought an ice block i think and just stood there sucking it while he abused her and it's just nasty for no reason <laughs>
1: What an odd character. He used to raise yeah. lions. I, I watched a documentary oh. about him. It was very interesting.
2: Well, uh. that's the thing. You can't always trust documentaries about him, and I do no. go into that. He claimed that he was a multimillionaire, and he owned property in Italy and throughout California, and he owned boats and uh, Mercedes Benzes, and uh, that was just crap. He was pretty much died a pauper. And he had a lot of tall stories. He claimed he'd had an affair with Jane Mansfield and Marilyn Monroe <laughs> and that he had uh, a some nudie picture of her, of Marilyn Monroe, that was autographed to him and that was actually signed by his wife at the time. And yeah, he claimed a lot of things. Uh, he had a, a very grand past, if we believe him, but a lot of that was untrue.
1: It seems like it's sort of, uh, again, like a ritualised version of... Um uh, just a very selfish, um, uh, Ayn Randian type uh, philosophy. Oh, I think
2: uh, there is that that yeah. element. I think they they profess to be very kind and good people to those who deserve it, right. and if not, <laughs> then they're assholes. And and admittedly, they. Uh, I think it's not really something that's practiced in any kind of. Church nowadays. I mean, initially there was the the house come church that Anton LaVey lived in in San Francisco, and now they have their headquarters in appropriately in Hell's Kitchen in New York. But any Satanism is really just practiced in the home, um, and it's just not the kind of thing that you hear about with satanic ritual abuse, though.
1: But you know, I, I've never understood the. Um... At least the way that um, the church the Christian Church represents it oh, and it this is not a big thing a Christian church in general, but it certainly sits there in the legendary it's in the folklore but not canonical right the, that that mm-hmm. the Faust idea that people make deals with Satan and are rewarded for it but it,
2: oh like Jimmy Page
1: <laughs> yeah right well there's all kinds of people that you know that, that but being raised as a Protestant you know my understanding was always that going to hell was the default position everybody's going to go to hell unless they accept Christ's uh, redemption in order to get into heaven. So Mm -hmm. the idea that people would be successful by making a deal with Satan for their soul really made no sense because by default he gets your soul, right?
2: Yes, and of course you can't trust him. So if you make a pact with him and offer him your soul uh, for fame and fortune, you, you can't trust him anyway.
1: I think it's metaphysical sour grapes. People people see successful people and they can't understand why they're not successful. And so they make this claim, oh, clearly they made a deal with the devil because there's no way well, they, they could be that successful on their own.
2: Then you have uh, urban legends surrounding Led Zeppelin and, as I said, Jimmy Page. And he goes and buys Alistair Crowley's old place in Scotland and uh, purchased a lot of Crowley memorabilia. And so people just, I guess, made a natural assumption that he'd made a Faustian pact yeah. with the devil. <laughs> As you do, <laughs>
1: either uh, either the devil or perhaps Sauron. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> the uh, uh, Misty Mountain Hop comes to mind, but the um... <laughs> love that song. <laughs> it's a good song. Yeah, and even uh, as you pointed out, uh, even uh, Ozzy Osbourne says, "You know, that's just show. It's not real." Um,
2: yeah, yeah. He said, oh, I'm just a, a nice guy and I'm not a Satanist. And it's, I think it's good PR for musicians or it's often been, but not so much for some companies that have been uh, attacked by uh, those out there who who claim that these companies are affiliated with the Church of Satan or with oh,
1: exactly. demons
2: like- somehow, um, Liz Claiborne and... McDonald's well, and th- Procter & Gamble.
1: Me. Yeah, Procter & Gamble. This, this dates me, but uh, <laughs> so when I was a kid, uh, bef- way before the internet existed, uh, people still had something like spam. Offices... <laughs> Uh, across the country would get on these fax uh, links people would be sending fax spam and your fax machine would just dump out stuff that people shared and people would share these uh, these urban legends on uh, fax paper and we got some mm-hmm. and uh, it all explained about how that um, uh, Procter & Gamble's logo uh, the stars could be shaped to say 666 I totally yes, and remember that and the
2: curls in the guy's beard mm-hmm. I remember that too. I was just a kid, but I yeah. remember looking at a picture on some Procter and Gamble product in Australia, a detergent maybe, and seeing that symbol and thinking that there was something evil about it, but really not understanding what was behind it. And uh, I don't know if you know, but it was actually that that whole scam was traced back to Amway.
1: Yeah, I, but if um, you would like to learn more about Amway, you can give me a call. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, you know, my parents went through the Amway thing. We had the uh, drawing the circles and it was, you know, mm. I was just a kid. And I thought, this sounds wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Procter & Gamble had to retire that symbol and they'd been using various forms of that for about 100 years. So I thought that was a yeah. shame from it's, a historical perspective.
1: It's really difficult to, to convince people that uh, you're not actually uh, secretly powered by Satan. <laughs> um, I, just, I mean, if, if people are willing to believe that Satan is actually, you know, working with corporations, yeah. it's going to be, if they're willing to believe that, it's mm-hmm. going to be hard to talk them out of it, right?
2: Oh, yeah. And yeah. I think these urban legends always survive the truth and exposure.
1: But but there's this persistent story about the satanic cults that are lurking around the country, killing babies, sacrificing babies. But you, you didn't find any evidence that that's true?
2: No, you'll normally find with the Richard Ramirez's and uh, other characters like that, um, they are pseudo-Satanists. Satanists, people who are members of the Church of Satan, don't see those people as being Satanists. They're really pretenders. They're uh, people who have psychological issues, mental illnesses, uh, and yet it's just I think Satanism has always been a good outlet for them, something for them to align themselves to, but certainly not the same thing as the Church of Satan. Mm-hmm. And again, cases of vandalism and animal sacrifice. Uh, animal abuse might be related to drugs, but animal sacrifice is probably going to be Santeria.
1: The idea that they are uh, out there, you know, uh, farming babies uh, to power their dark cults uh, mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't seem to be true. They still sound a little bit like a-holes, and I shouldn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't want to, like, paint them well, all with a, a, a dark brush, but, uh, uh, you know.
2: Yeah, that uh, really they got swept up into the whole satanic ritual abuse thing. They were an easy target, and um, the book Michelle Remembers, that's what kick-started a lot of the satanic ritual abuse claims and the satanic panic. Uh, and in that book, the author, I think it's Michelle Smith, uh, she underwent maybe 600 hours of sessions with her psychotherapist, later husband. And she made all of these claims under hypnosis. These were false memories that were implanted into her her mind. Uh, she claimed that her mother had been involved with the Church of Satan back in 1956. And, of course, the Church of Satan wasn't around for maybe about another 12 or 13 years. So they just couldn't have been a part of that. So it was just... Dumb luck, really, that that yeah. should coincide.
1: Well, I, I want to visit that a little deeper in a future episode because um, the idea of the, the satanic ritual abuse ties in very uh, closely with the ideas of um, alien abduction. And not that they're mm-hmm. the same phenomena in of uh, in what the experiences are recounted as, but that they're a similar phenomena in how the experiences are, are put into the brain. So
2: Yeah, that would be a fascinating episode. There's yeah. a lot of information there with the McMartin uh, primary school trial mm-hmm. that took place in California and all of the amazing stories that came out about that and children being abused by giraffes and uh, oh, just crazy stories. People- right.
1: It's, 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 but when the, when the uh, people are not following up on whether the things really happened, it seems like the more outrageous the claim, the quicker they are to accept it as true. It's very odd.
2: Oh, yeah. There was a lot of abuse taking place there with leading questions, bad therapists.
1: Legal abuse versus actual real abuse, right?
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. With some very real world. uh,
1: Yes. Really bad consequences uh, for people people going to
2: jail for years and losing family, uh, losing their careers.
1: Yeah, and a lot of this just comes down to people don't understand how memory works, which is we just—I did a, a, a special called uh, "She Is Believing," which a couple episodes ago was just a special thing I did with um, uh, Elizabeth Loftus and um, Richard Wiseman, and uh, just yeah, I, you can't trust your memory. I mean, it's, it's good for everyday stuff, but if something's mm-hmm. fantastic, something's weird or unusual, you can't trust your memory. You just oh uh, yeah, yeah so.
2: and I think a lot of skeptics are. Uh, skeptical about things like hypnosis and and false memory, but those are, are very real things.
1: Yes. Yes, they are. Uh, I, I would say uh, this is a fantastic book, and there's lots more. We've only covered three topics, but there's many more chapters, uh, and I think you'll really enjoy it if you pick this book up. A uh, link is in the show notes. And
2: And there are plenty of monsters still in the book, too. Sure
1: there are. And puns.
2: religion and and skepticism. I'm sorry?
1: I said, and puns.
2: Lots of puns. But, yeah, I think the the main monsters that I focus on are the the worst monsters being people.
1: People. The real monsters. Exactly. The real monsters. Well, speaking of monsters, um, I don't think I've gotten to ask you this before. What's your favorite monster, Karen?
2: I think I answered this on an interview that we did years ago for Skepticality. And that's Jeff. Oh, my. Okay, OK, And Jeff's nothing's changed, OK? <laughs> <laughs> In all of these years, it's still Jeff.
1: That's so great. I'm so glad we got to do that interview. Wasn't that good? Oh,
2: that that was my favorite. Yeah, uh, was really I really cool. loved that story. Uh, and talking with Christopher, he was so knowledgeable, and I can't wait for his book to come out.
1: Yeah, I really hope he finishes that up.
2: He will. <laughs> I'm keeping an eye on him on Facebook.
1: Excellent. <laughs> thank you so much for coming back here, and I really appreciate it. Oh,
2: thank it. you for having me. This was a lot of fun.
1: Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Karen Stolzno about her new book, God Bless America. A link to this book's in the show notes at monstertalk.org, or you can find it at Amazon.com, along with her other book, Haunting America. Which is available exclusively for the Kindle ebook reader. That book's all about famous American ghosts, and it really sheds some light on a rather shadowy topic. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on Monster Talk are those of myself and my guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. This is probably our last episode for 2013, and I hope you'll stay with us into 2014 where I'll be talking more on cryptids and critters and trying to get to the bottom of mysteries that we're all curious about. If you enjoy Monster Talk and like monsters, why not come join our Facebook group? It's a fun place to find out what's new in the monster world, and you can meet a wide spectrum of folks with similar interests. I'd also like to grow Monster Talk's listener base. Is there someone you know who'd benefit from listening to Monster Talk, why not share the show with them? or leave us a review on iTunes. Those are simple actions. They only take a few minutes, and they have a big impact. I'd like to say special thanks out to Robert Smith and Joseph Hitchar, I hope I'm saying that right, for their generous support of our transcript project. If you'd like to donate, the link is at the bottom of our website, again, at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you so much for listening.
0: abreast of the latest from skeptic magazine and the skeptic society want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the skeptic society visit skeptic.com to sign up
1: but um um, um the the uh, um
2: the satan of spawn mm-hmm. um uh and um
1: um uh, well i uh um uh, so d- d- I,
2: um 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 atone for all of the silts.
1: um uh i don't know what you would call that in the the the
2: um um uh yeah and
1: i i don't um
2: I, I, uh, um
1: yeah i it's also you know i, I uh the the, fa- the people the sort of the um set now um yeah it, I have to say that um while um um com- uh, well.